It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is Time Enough Podcast. Welcome to Time Enough Podcast, where we talk about episodes of the Twilight Zone and beyond. This is Matt here. Today with me is a returnee. He's from the Mission Log Podcast at Roddenberry Podcasts. Hello, John Champion. Hello. Thanks for having me back. And uh, thanks for letting me talk about Twilight Zone again. Right on. I mean, I get way ahead with recording these sometimes just because they're really fun to do. So (laughs) (laughs) it's it's hard not to get ahead of it. But um, blame you. Really quick. One one thing I've been trying to get in the habit of is uh, having guests give their upfront where to find them. So if you could tell people where to do that. Oh, sure. I'll make that short and sweet because you already said it. Podcast.roddenberry.com. I've got a bunch of shows there. Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Trek Files, Sci-Fi 5, um, Mission Log The Orville, just a a, a Mission Log Prodigy, ton of stuff there. So come to podcast.roddenberry.com and uh, find what you like and then subscribe. There you go. Easy enough, right? Right on. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm going to jump into a bit of... uh info on a world of difference today's episode this written was this written was episoded by hmm. <laughs> i feel like i'm slowly getting more dyslexic as i get older okay yeah, fair. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was written by twilight zone sharp shooter richard matheson he's not rod serling but he was one of the prime pinch hitters for this show and later iterations Ted Post directed this jam besides a bunch of other other Twilight Zone episodes. His own was in the Wild West with TV shows like Gunsmoke, Rawhide, and Wagon Train. And he directed a whole lot of Peyton Place as well. But it's his film credit on Beneath the Planet of the Apes that really lights my fire. Nice. You can call him Arthur. You can call him Gary. But he's really Howard Duff, and he made his name on radio as Sam Spade. This led to a bunch of noir appearances in films circling 1950, like The Naked City. He kept working until his passing into the next Bardo in 1990, notably appearing as Dustin Hoffman's attorney attorney in Kramer versus Kramer. For those keeping track of the Twilight Zone synchronicities, he was married to actor-director Ida Lupino, who we last saw in the 16mm Shrine with a their coincidence cool. with you here, John. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. Okay. Aline Ryan plays Nora. Her acting career is not unimpressive, but not particularly prolific. She was more prolific in birthing Penn brothers, Sean, Chris, and Michael. After a brief spurt of work, including this, she took a big break before taking a victory lap of showing up in her son's movies. And finally, Brinkley is played by David White. You may recognize his face as you play Darren's boss, Larry Tate, and Bewitched. So... Wow, I wrote this. Yeah, I wrote it a week ago. Now I'm like, oh, really, really, really? Oh, cool. yeah, yeah, right. Well, and, and hey, uh, since you mentioned Ted Post, who's directing credits, I, I honestly didn't know, but you said Peyton Place, and Eileen Ryan was on Peyton Place. Um, I don't know if she was on a lot, but I know that she did some. Um, so I don't know if that was uh, uh, something that they, you know, they knew each other from before and you know kept working together or what. But um, 
So that's kind of a, another little connection there. And uh, speaking of Ted Post, having uh, you said he directed Beneath the Planet of the Apes, right? Well, yes, the second so, one. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just was at a, a screening for Planet of the Apes last night, the, the 1968 original uh, hosted by Dr. Zayas. Oh, right. So, I, yeah. I'll, I'll try not to sing the song from The Simpsons. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, hard. I don't want to get into a copyright thing there. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> Dr. Zayas was there to introduce the film and had some uh, makeup and effects artists from the later, you know, the the Tim Burton, the reimagined Apes movies. Um, and it was just great. It was great to see that on a huge screen at the Academy Museum and, uh, of course, tied into our show today. Screenplay, well story by Rod Serling based on the Pierre Boulle book, uh, but really the the script, the screenplay was by uh, Michael Wilson. We, we could smell some of his um, his scent on when we did, um, oh, what was it? Um, for I, I shot an arrow into the air, I think, and um, oh, there's yeah. a sequence of the yeah. astronauts kind of stumbling through the desert, and we're like, this is super Planet of the Apes-like. Uh, so, right, yeah. <laughs> but um, I have yeah. I, I have a weird thing with that series where I, I know the I know the first one's obviously like the best one, but I kind of enjoy yeah. the series as it goes. Like, yeah. like it gets so whack by the battle. I'm just like, I love this. I love that they don't have money anymore, you know. Yep. <laughs> but yep. they're yeah. they've gotten way too ambitious. It's fantastic. Uh, have not done the TV series yet, but <laughs> uh, you know what? The, the TV series is good. Uh, the animated series is really good. Uh, because like Star Trek going to animated, they were able to take a bunch of liberties with it and just do crazy stuff that, you know, a live action budget wouldn't allow. Uh, so they were able to spend more time with the apes and develop more characters. And yeah, it was just, it, it was cool. And I want to say, if I'm right, General Urko was voiced by the same guy who voiced Fred Flintstone. <laughs> so, Yeah. As we're recording this, there was actually just a Will Wheaton post where he was, I guess, trying to promote someone's um, thing where they had made like Star Trek The Next Generation animated series with like the oh, filmation style and they man, put the music clips in. And uh, It <laughs> is ridiculously good. It is so good. You have to go check it out. Yeah, yeah. I just I, I watched it actually in the 10 minutes oh, you before did. we started this. So I good, was like, good, this good. is great. Yeah. Oh, um, man. It, so, it, insanely good. Just to throw it back into the zone, here is today's prologue. Uh, as usual, you can read it any way you want. You can get your teeth dry, or you could take a different approach. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at a tableau of reality, things of substance, of physical material, a desk, a window, a light. These things exist and have dimension. Now, this is Arthur Curtis, age 36, who is also real. He has flesh and blood, muscle and mind, but in just a moment, we will see how thin a line separates that which we assume to be real with that manufactured inside of a mind. All right. So it's kind of like oh. imposter syndrome, the episode in a way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which... Arthur Curtis slash Jerry Reagan. That's almost, yeah, that's, and then you got the actor himself. We're getting into like Garth Marenghi territory there, which uh, <laughs> I, I've right. been podcasting as we're talking about like, which name should we use? We don't yeah, know what to call yeah, these yeah, people. Yeah. Is it Garth? Is it Matthew? Uh, what's his name? Is it <laughs> yeah. Dr. Whatever? Uh, yeah, see, I've forgotten all the names now, but I, I finished doing that a month ago, so I can. Oh, okay, cool. Memory, yeah, yeah. memory drum. Um, yeah. 
now that I've been doing this as a series, when you know, as you know, you start to notice things you never would when you start going through every single episode. Yeah. And um, the Twilight Zone is, of course, famous for the twist, even though there's a few episodes that don't really have one. But sure. especially in the season one, I've been finding the other big thing is the effect. There's always <laughs> some really low budget, but super just like so not sophisticated, elegant effect. Um, mm -hmm. Now, do you know what I'm talking about in this episode? I, it's I'm really I mean, I, I was wondering if you're talking about a lighting thing, either when uh, Arthur is leaving, when, it, when he stops being Arthur in the opening scene and starts being Jerry, well, well entering Jerry's world uh, during the first scene, or is it the return, Jerry becoming Arthur again at the end? I it's, don't know. It's both. Okay. Because um, the set, if it's a continuous shot this is a very subtle yeah. effect that's why i like it so much he's talking to his secretary the camera follows him into his office where you see the whole office you see yeah. all i think you see four walls of the office but they, um, they close up that wall yeah they had right? a fake yeah, yeah, yeah they had a fake wall and just yeah. but the thing is I, I don't know why you can't do adr or something but they apparently had trouble making it the wall like silent like they oh had, <laughs> i guess i didn't they, even notice that that's why I like that, this effect so much, because I'm like, you don't notice it until someone tells you about it or you read about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that yeah, that's very cool. So there's a lighting change there anyway. But then, yeah, that is a great point where this move that wall and then boom, you're you're in his world entirely. Not quite yeah. as obvious as the uh, walking, talking slot machine and uh, the fever, but that <laughs> that that's fantastically stupid. I mean, <laughs> nothing is as obvious as that. Yeah. So yeah, that, that one sticks out to you. But um, yeah, I guess, uh, do you have any impressions you wanted to throw off? This was one of the ones you you chose, so. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, it, it's a nice uh, parallel to 16 millimeter Shrine um, because you, you've got this similar thing with actors who are sort of lost in the character slash now the character is lost in the actor. Um, and, and the other thing that I mentioned with 16 millimeter shrine is that I, I feel like this is one of those very interesting, ambiguous stories where you look at it and on the surface you go, okay, here's a person who is going mad. And when we get to know his life and you see like all the pressures on him, his, his wife, who is just being awful. I mean, they, they really like crank that up to 11 with, uh, uh with Nora, um, you then you start to have all this sympathy for Jerry and you want him to have the life of Arthur Curtis. And in the end, he gets what he wants. He gets this relief of being Arthur Curtis, even though Arthur Curtis only exists on paper. Well, go back to our protagonist in the 16 millimeter shrine and it's kind of a similar thing. It's like you can put all these things together in your head and say, well, are they dead? Are they going out of their minds where do they actually exist anymore in the real world and in in her case you know just existing on celluloid or in this case existing maybe only in that you know the printed pages of that script which is the last thing we see in uh, in the episode so I, I i had to wonder you know what is the what is the writer's attitude toward the character and what is the intended attitude of the audience to have because 
and you know, from one point of view, you can say, well, he's lost his mind and where is he? He's gone. He's totally lost touch with reality. But on the other hand, you can say, but he got what he wanted and maybe he's okay now. Maybe he's better off with Marion and uh, the, the little girl whose name I forget, you know, off that, that last shot you see is the TWA 707 going off on their trip. All right. Does that exist? Do they exist on that plane? You seem to be, seem to be kind of sending a, a signal that says, no, his life is actually carrying on, but he's carrying on in the fantasy of this, this construct. So I don't know. It, it, it kind of leaves us with a pleasant bit of amb ambiguity. Yeah, that was uh, in the trivia finding out that uh, Nora is played by, you know, Sean Penn's mom. I'm like, oh, like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, we got angry Sean Penn. I can kind of maybe see where he got those chops from because he's she's oh man, she's uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, she's gorgeous. Uh, she's absolutely I mean, that one of the things that I love about an episode like this, I love when Hollywood gets to play Hollywood. I love when you actually get to use a studio as a studio in the streets of LA as the streets of LA. It's very cool. And she's perfect casting because she looks like this 1950s movie star, you know, and she, she's just very stylish. But then, man, as soon as she opens her mouth and puts Jerry in his place, watch out. <laughs> well, the first yeah. thing she does, I mean, it's hit almost hit him with her car. But the second thing she does yeah. is... Yeah. Kind of try to help him up, right? And they're like, oh, yeah. maybe this is... A and then within two seconds, it's like, ooh, he has just stepped in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's now, not... Nothing is going to go well for him. Of course, I have guests like you do the prologues, but uh, just as a little experiment here, I'm going to do the prologue slightly differently and starting in the middle. You know? Oh, nice. Okay. All right. Now, this is Arthur Curtis, age 36, who's also real. He has flesh and blood, muscle and mind, slowly decaying, slowly going towards the ravages of old age. His family life deteriorating about him, his job a dead end. So in this alternate episode, his life sucks. And when the wall comes up, everything's peachy. And maybe the twist yeah. at the end is he ends up stuck in his terrible life again. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be. The idea being the prologue, these often paint your protagonist like, you know, with a very wide brush. Like, this is a dirty man, a scummy man, you know? Right. And that's when you know this right. guy is going to bite it by the end of the episode. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking you could easily tweak this episode to go that way instead. And would that be more or less effective? Well, see, as you're saying this, I wonder is this, could, could this almost be a parable about the grass? not being greener, you know, uh, because the longer Jerry spends in Arthur's world, that could be terrible too. Yeah, that, <laughs> that could be an absolutely awful way to spend your life. And, and maybe the lesson could be, oh, you may think, you may look at this construct of uh, the, the successful businessman, which 36, I'm going to say is not middle age, but, but, <laughs> you know, you look at his life and, um, maybe he's stuck in, in this never ending loop of work and then home and then work and then home. And, and he may love his family, but it may also, he may not be finding fulfillment in the things that he does. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to say that somebody else's life is actually 
better, the better proposition where you would rather spend your time. What we do know for sure is that Jerry has reached a point in his life that he can't continue, you know. It just I feel like this should have occurred to me earlier because I just talked about this, but there is the opposite of this more or less. Uh, on my sci-fi podcast last month, we covered Seconds with Rock Hudson, which has, you know, it starts off with the aging guy in a, his dead-end life and, you know, get, getting this opportunity to become Rock Hudson and live in Malibu. Yeah. And, you know, that, yeah, that yeah. turns to crap. So yeah, <laughs> I was right, like, okay, that, right. that actually is the opposite of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I guess right. that would be how it turns out. I mean, obviously, you know, the Twilight Zone 25-minute format, it would be something different. But uh, that, that's kind of one of the fun things. Is like, okay, they made these decisions to get this certain tone and just a few tweaks in those decisions would really change the tone. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I also want to point out a, a few other things um, that the, uh, I, I was very surprised that Bernard Herman doesn't get the music credit on this episode because there are scenes early in the show when, uh, when he and Nora are leaving the studio absolutely sounds like a riff on Bernard Herrmann's North by Northwest score. So I don't know if they just had something that Bernard Herrmann had recorded earlier and then they decided like, ah, let's save that for this episode. And they, they brought that in. Um, but it, then, then the music tonally takes a big shift. And then you have that very like 50s sci-fi theremin sounding like high pitched warbly. So very different tone from what we have in the first half of the episode. Um, and the other thing is uh, uh, bad ADR, because <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, uh, the little girl that he mistakes oh, right. <laughs> for his daughter. And it's just this long cut where they could have dropped out in, in half as much time, where it's like, Mommy, that's the man who scared me. There he is. That's the man. Mommy, he scared me. <laughs> like, <laughs> please stop. Because this little girl is not, her mouth is not moving. She's just pointing. <laughs> that, that, was, a, that was the producer saying, it's not clear. We need to make sure it's clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. We have so many more seconds to kill before our first uh, ad break. <laughs> with, yeah. with the music, I, I think they say it in the Twilight Zone companion that um, due to, you know, like musician unions and due to budgets at the studio, there was mm. kind of this, this, formula where this percent of the music is library music this uh, percent of music is uh reappropriated from another film and this percent yeah. you can get composers uh okay. for, for example when he did the hitchhiker it does have a bernard herman score and i think they credited him on that one but the okay. score is from the radio drama version 15 years earlier which oh, was actually like wow. one of his first wow. um i think it was one of his first american credits <laughs> oh interesting wow Wow. So he still scored it, but not he, he wasn't actively scoring that. And I, I, I make music for some, you know, some weird Z grade low budget movies. <laughs> awesome one. Sorry. Don's horrific. I shot him out because uh, he shows up on this podcast. But um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's been a few times where I did compose specifically for him. But usually I'll just send him like instrumental versions of the tracks I'm working on and let him do what he wants with them. So <laughs> sure. Yeah. Why not? But uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome, crazy movies. Now nah, he likes being called weird. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if the shoe fits, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody yeah, weird yeah. like me. There we go. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Another 
thing that I definitely like thinking of when we get to these episodes are the uh, reactions when people end up in these situations. Um, some past ones would be um, Marty flipping out and walking distance and making every time traveler mistake possible. Uh, <laughs> and then there's people like um, I, I, the Purple Testament just aired on the, the actual stream. And that one, the guy is very stoic and, you know, barely register it barely tells the superior what's happening he kind of keeps it to himself so yeah um this is a pretty jarring shift i mean if the wall if i look around and it's a movie yeah that that, that is that really is going to play with anyone's mind probably more than walking into your uh, childhood town sure <laughs> sure yeah I mean, I, I think the other thing that's very interesting that that is the very obvious thing we haven't talked about, um, and that is, you know, look, there there's one actor's nightmare that is the, the persistent one that you show up for your job and you don't know your lines. You know, you're shoved out on stage and all that rehearsal, everything is just completely left your brain. And that that is the classic actor's nightmare. There's the other nightmare that's happening here, which is that you are so entrenched in a role that you have completely lost your own uh, sense of identity and sense of self. And there's something very real about that, though, um, which I, I know I'm going to bring up on Mission Log again uh, at the right point when we talk about kind of the cohesion of the cast on Voyager. Uh, but it's something that Nana Visitor brought up when she did her interview with us and talking about playing Colonel Kira. Um, which is that 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 headspace that you have to be in because you have to live the emotional reality of that character otherwise it comes across as very fake and very very transparent on uh, on tv is that you start to think like that character and then you start to react like that character and people react to you as that character and, and it does a number on you and particularly if you're doing that you know 12 to 16 hours a day for the better part of a year at a time when you're doing a show like that, that has the demands of, uh, of you know, making you stay in that character. So here's Jerry Reagan as Arthur Curtis, maybe an actor who is so good at his job <laughs> that he has completely lost his own identity, that, that those words, that life, those experiences and those other characters just come that naturally to him because he is lost in the role. So I, I could see where an actor could uh, identify with what's going on with uh, Jerry here. One thing I, I have to, I have to call myself an anti-actor. I, I, can't, I can't act. I've been in one movie. It's on YouTube to uh, okay. absolutely prove I cannot act. <laughs> I, I showed it to my wife once and there's a scene where I'm at the computer and she's like, you're reading your lines off the screen. I'm like, well, it's there. It's right there. Why wouldn't you? Why yeah. Exactly. Why shouldn't yeah. I be? Yeah. But um, yeah, you mentioned up the, the Colonel Kira um, thing. Yeah. This, this would be kind of the opposite though. It's kind of like Jerry's life is horrible. And then because, you know, mm -hmm. you don't really want to escape into Colonel Kira's life. That's <laughs> no, 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 no. But but I mean, she's saying that it's just inevitable. Like mm -hmm. it, it just happens because you spend such a long time in that headspace that, that just no matter what, it, 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 it's there. Yeah. You know? Well, my point is she yeah. kind of yeah. said it was giving her like kind of nightmares, like, right, of, mm -hmm. that, of being yeah, in that character. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if we go ahead and take the actor, um, Kind of perspective that jerry is the real person 
yeah. and he's escaping into his role. Like it's a yeah, pleasant place yeah. to be. So it's kind of the sure. interesting. I mean, again, it's kind of the opposite of what you're mentioning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, the, the same yeah. thing, just the other side of the yeah. coin, right? But better. Yeah. Better outcome for him. Maybe, maybe a better outcome for him, uh, except that he's going to, what, keep trying to go to work at an office that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then uh, author, author conversely has zero acting abilities because he cannot roll with any of these situations. I mean, yeah. you know, the um, Howard Duff can act, sure. I'm, but now we're yeah. thinking about author who cannot respond to these situations with anything but like incredulity, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is a tough thing for an actor to pull off, to play both of those roles and both realities, you know? Um, he, he's awfully good at it. Uh, by the way, did you see, I, I, I think I told you before, you know, I watch everything with uh, closed captions at least once when I'm preparing for uh, something like this or a mission log or whatever, just because I want to make sure that I get the details, you know? And there is that scene where Nora is yelling at Jerry, getting him to sign the uh, divorce papers and she's sign your name jerry reagan r-a-i-g-a-n and it, it is a very weird spelling of that name and apparently they were probably worried that you know ronald reagan who was president of the screen actors guild at the time we probably didn't want to have some confusion or inference about him um but when I was watching the closed captioning, every time they refer to him as Reagan, they spell it R-E-A-G-A-N. They spell it like the, the normal way. So it's just when Nora's yelling at him that uh, that they change the, the spelling. So I guess whoever's doing the closed captioning, those weren't paying attention. On like, yeah, on Wikipedia and stuff, uh, it is listed mm -hmm. with the weird spelling. So I assume not, oh, not that we should, not yeah. that we not that we should assume everything on Wikipedia is uh, true, but I, I'm gonna right, guess, right. I'm gonna guess this yeah. a little bit. I, I feel like it might be reasonably accurate because yeah, when I was doing the, the trivia stuff, I, was, I did notice that. You know, yeah. when I was right when I yeah. was writing my here, I, I if you saw my note when actually watching it was so this is Ronald's mm. first wife Ray Gunn, which uh, you know yeah. is a uh, <laughs> Bill Scott Heron reference if you know that track. <laughs> when Reagan was elected, he said he just keeps going. He's talking, uh, talk, it, it's a song that is so B-movie, very valid to these times as well, if you change all the names. But, yeah, nice, <laughs> nice, yeah. You know, the, sentiment, cool. the sentiment is always, the political sentiment of uh, the system is always real, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah he's like, yeah. Reagan, Reagan. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's great. That's what I call him now. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Ronald Reagan, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, where was I going with that? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, how about maybe you know more tales than I do about the uh, notorious method actors? I, I made my note. You know, I bet I bet yeah. Daniel Day Lewis has been weirder on set than this before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's always I I, I don't know they. There are always weird stories about that, depending on, you know, who it is. And and, and some of it, I think you can chalk up to, um, to a very premeditated style of learning and a style of acting. 
And and I get that, even though I may disagree with that. I mean, I think it was Sir Lawrence Olivier or maybe it was Sir Ian McKellen who just said, like, no, you, you just act. You, you just show up and you act. You pretend. That, that's what you do, <laughs> you know? Um, but, you know, Brando made famous uh, uh, using the method, and that's really what propelled him to stardom. And, and uh, you know, uh, for I, I think for, for good... Um, changed our expectation of what we see in TV and film is that we see this more naturalistic, more realistic approach instead of what was a whole generation of theater actors going over to film. And that's why it can be very jarring sometimes to watch, you know, movies from the 1930s or 40s pre-method where there's a lot of, you know, big uh, indicating uh, about what, you know, what, what's happening in the mind of, of that actor. But sometimes it works really well. And sometimes that's okay. It just depends on if it's uh, if that style is congruent with the rest of the story that's being told. I I think, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, with, with actors actually losing themselves in the emotional reality of a role. Sometimes it's not even something that is uh, that is actively done, like using the method. But it is something that is just a residual effect of being in those scenes. If you're in really intense emotional scenes all day long, that is physically and mentally draining on somebody who has to do that. And it's even more difficult than when you're shooting something out of order and you got to jump from one emotion to another and you've got to forget dialogue so you can remember new dialogue. Like it's for people who have said, like, oh, I could be an actor chances are you can't because it's it's really difficult work um, and yeah there are some people who maybe got lucky and uh and got roles and they aren't that great or maybe because they fit a certain type that uh that that you know fits what's being cast but people who are really top of their game who are really excellent actors there is a huge toll that it takes on them because it, it is grueling work most of the time and uh and i i don't doubt it a when people try to stay in a certain headspace when they're on set because it can be very distracting to do something emotionally intense and then you go to lunch and you're laughing it up with your fellow castmates and then get back into something that's very emotionally intense that's really hard to do um and I'm not surprised at all that actors will finish something if it's particularly a, a long shoot and they just need time to decompress. They need time to kind of find themselves again so they're not stuck in the emotional reality of the, the job that they were doing. So, yeah, you know, I, I have a bit of sympathy for I, I don't have sympathy for people who are jerks on set because I've been around them, but I do have sympathy for people who um who put themselves in that difficult situation. It's really hard to do. And everybody has to have their own way of getting in and out of that moment and, and just doing the, the hard work that's ahead of them. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm feeling like you're talking about great character actors. And I'm thinking about mm -hmm. some of the, uh, you know, the, like the, the pop stars as an acting and, um, I'm going to mention people I really yeah. like here, so I'm not like sure. trying to yeah, yeah, yeah. put dirt. Let's take Chris Pratt. When Chris Pratt shows up, he's going to Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, um, and you're hiring him. You're hiring him for that Prattness that he brings. Yeah, and I can't remember him not pratting. 
uh, yes. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise mostly the same. Uh, the last, but with him, then there's those outliers when he does Magnolia or does Collateral yep. or does uh, that Tropic Thunder cameo, and that's that's when oh, you're like, oh, man. okay. Because when I watch Mission Impossible movies, I love them. I'm yep. like, he's he's he wants to do a crazy stunt. That's why he's here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, I'm so glad you mentioned Collateral. That is such a good movie. I love that movie. But, he, but even then, whether it's something that is more serious and dark like collateral is where he's playing the the bad guy or it's something that is a little more well a lot more of a comic book like the mission impossible movies if you didn't believe the emotional reality of the scenes even in movies like the mission impossible i i forget which was the one with um philip seymour hoffman the as third one i think the third one yeah like those scenes are what's memorable about those movies because the stunts you'll you'll just sort of not that you'll forget the stunts but the the stunts will just stand out on their own and and you'll just be like yeah. oh yeah tom cruise did a thing where he scaled this huge building or what it, and, and that's fine like like there is an art to that 100% but you really come away going like oh okay well that was a good movie because i remember the things that resonated with me which are emotional scenes that that have some dramatic intensity or some dramatic reality to them so in the hands of a less skilled actor those would always play as very false i mean it, it's like watching um it's like watching daniel craig as james bond you know that james bond is going to survive i, I don't want to say anything <laughs> about that but you you know that james bond ultimately is going to survive whatever encounter he has with the bad guy but he's also got to make you believe that he is in danger and and that it is a legitimately dangerous situation that he's in you know so you take a big comic book character like james bond and i know he's not no he didn't come from a comic book but i'm i'm using that in little, little novels C, close enough <laughs> yeah yeah a comic bookish character like james bond and you still have to believe the uh, the the emotional reality of of his world, you know. So yeah, there, there there's an art to all of that. Um, and, and I, I get it. Like it, you know, I, I've been on enough sets where, for professionals, it's understood. You don't go bother people while they're at work. You you don't um, you, you know you, you don't just chat up the actors when they're on a break or whatever because you just don't like if you had if you're filming a scene where you've got 50 people on a crew and however many actors around and maybe there are extras you know background players as well you know you've potentially got a set with hundreds of people on it if those hundreds of people every time you cut a scene are just like goofing off and trying to get a picture and trying to get an autograph or whatever like i was i was watching a a show I I'm, I'm not gonna name names <laughs> but <laughs> I was all right I was watching a live performance of somebody and he was sort of it was very weird because he was sort of at the same time of the performance like giving you his resume here are all the things that I've worked on and there's a shot of him with his arm around a very a-list star like super stratospheric a-list star and this guy was definitely not a co-star in this production. 
He was like an uncredited, you know, uh, a background player. But there he is, like, on a break with his arm around this very big A-list star. And I just thought, like, how long after that picture was taken was this guy escorted off set? <laughs> because if it had been my set, absolutely this person would have been escorted off the set. Dude, this is not your movie. This is not your time. And please do not break the concentration of the main actor here. It I'm is gonna... not cool. I'm going to name names. That's Troy McClure, right? Ah, Troy, <laughs> there you go. Second. There you go. Yeah. May uh, remember you, me from such films it. as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so as I said, I, I don't, I don't act. I haven't been on sets much. Um, and if they were, yeah. I, you can't call them real sets, but I do have an analogy. I played on a lot of orchestras. So, okay. um, you know, you sit down in the cello, I'm a cello player. So you sit down in the cello section. It's considered bad form to whip out a sonata and start like going through it or something. Like you're supposed yeah, to sit yeah, there and practice, yeah. practice the music like you're about to be practicing, right? So, yeah, yeah. And uh, sonatas and, you know, things like that are just like way beyond like general orchestra music. Like I could play the orchestra stuff for 20 years before I actually started to learn how to play that stuff. So, um, gotcha. Yeah. I did get a massive ego bump two weeks ago because of COVID. We're still having weird rehearsals. So it was just four cellos <laughs> in a large room. And uh, <laughs> and I started off with the fourth chair being the, the foreigner who can barely even function in Japanese. So, <laughs> but, but by the end of the session, since it was the first time they could actually hear me play, I was pumped up the first chair and being handed all the solo parts. So I was like, okay, yeah. I do know how to play this thing. <laughs> ah, good. Right, right. Now in a rock band, it's the opposite. You're going to show up to practice with and just start like shredding on your guitar, which is sure. extra funny because you're not going to do that in any of the actual music. Because that's sure, a terrible sure, idea. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh god. But I, I do feel like the um, the orchestra probably is a little more like a film set. There's a, a there's a Czech film that has a good analogy on that. I think it's a fireman's ball, which uh, basically I think they do it too as a metaphor for politics, like a house of mm. parliament or something, but uh, okay. that's a real, that's a real interesting one where it's using the orchestra's metaphor for, for the parliament. But I think it works for a movie set to a certain degree as well. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. Well, and, and a movie set, you know, depending on the scale is a little bit like an army. I mean, you, you have to, you have to rely on every, every level, every role doing its job correctly whether it is you, you know the the lowest paid pa to anybody above the line you know the the major actors or the director or whomever like everybody has to be doing their role in concert bring it back to the orchestra right. metaphor there <laughs> um or else the whole thing falls apart you know and and stupid things do happen like you know the one person who's you, you know standing way off set, but uh, offset, but their phone rings or they drop something or whatever. And, and you ruin a take that takes possibly hours, if not days and months of prep work to get to that moment. So, yeah, yeah you, you can flub a few notes in your string section, but if there's a big, <laughs> like, if there's, you know, a big stop or something, and so it's like, Brr, that's going to be, really, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, really, yeah, yeah. people are going to notice that. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I have a few questions, but before I start asking them, is there are there any other points you really want to hit on here? Not really. Um, I, I yeah, no, 
No, I don't think so. I think I got through all the, you know, let's see, uh, talked about the bad ADR with the girl, <laughs> talked about uh, the Bernard Herman music, um, uh, how awful Nora is, but uh, awful, I mean, wonderful. She's just, you know, she's chewing scenery. So yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Those are the major points. I'm looking through um, my notes and just two things that I missed. One is I tried and failed to build a theremin when I was in high school. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I have a mini Moog now. Mini Moogs can do that. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you can, it's, it's not a theremin, but it's close enough. It's better in most ways. Um, nice, nice. The, the other one's a question for you. Um, okay. I know, I know in Malta, you can still visit the Popeye village. That's right. Yeah. And here's one, one I, I can't imagine the answer is yes, but I really hope it is. Is there anything left of Intolerance's Babylon sets in L.A.? Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I don't think so. You know, the, the most recent sort of uh, movie set road trips that I want to take, because uh, I know that there are remnants of them, um, if you get, if you go west and you go out toward like Malibu and the canyons out there, um, one is that the, uh, the 4077, so the MASH, uh, set, the, the set isn't there, but, but you can tell the scenery mm. that was there. And then, uh, Ape City from Planet of the Apes, bringing it back to Planet of the Apes. There are pieces of that still out there. And if you go north, I'm going to forget exactly which, um, what town it's near but you know the the legendary story which apparently is true is that cb DeMille shot his original 10 commandments not the 1950s one with uh charlton heston and yul brenner but his original silent in the 20s i think um and built these incredible sets and just covered them all over with sand so they're they're somewhere up north and somebody has found pieces of this so they're they're there so that's must the be, closest that's closest i can get you that must be right next to where they buried all the uh, atari 2600 et games yeah <laughs> right <laughs> but you know my hometown's atlanta you're i, I bet you i'm sure you spent some time there because your hometown's of not course. too far but uh yeah, yeah, why, yeah, yeah you know just so many film for well i don't know about now but a few years ago so many film productions were there and yeah, um, no there's a ton i mean hollywood keeps losing so many of them yeah because i was i was watching cobra kai and they're coming out of a movie, movie theater i'm like wow that really you know looks like where i would take my dates in high school and i was like wait a minute yeah. i look it up cobra kai filled in land used to Ma's location I'm like oh it is okay cool uh, <laughs> um i couldn't get past in black panther you know the the um the Museum of Great Britain, which is Atlanta's High Museum. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. With oh, with and the interiors, high museum is great. Yeah. yeah, they even have a few interiors in there. And what, what something else that something else that the the High Museum was recently used for it really. Blew. Oh, I think it was Okina uh, an Okinawa setting in um in in a later Cobra Kai. Okay, so oh, so in, cool. in that show, I yeah. think they did film the first season of that in L.A., but then switched to Atlanta. So like the first season, I didn't notice anything. Right, and second, I'm like, yeah. 
some of this looks really familiar now. Yeah. <laughs> and they keep doing those tax breaks. I mean, good for them. The Georgia Film Commission has been active for a long time, and they've really stepped it up in the last uh, last decade or so. By the way, I don't want to keep your audience hanging, but uh, the answer is uh, the Dunes Center in Guadalupe, California. And uh, apparently the movie was shot in 1923, and in the early 80s, um, uh, some of the stuff was uh, discovered, or at least that was when the, the initial expedition to go find it was started. And now whatever has been recovered and identified, there, there is actually a place. There is the Dunes Center where you can go visit. So Film, film archaeology. Wow. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, so as I, say, I have a few questions. The first one here. I always think it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. But uh, who in this episode went into the Twilight Zone? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is pretty obvious that it's Jerry Reagan who went into the Twilight Zone. Or is Here, it author? I, Could it be author? Well, <laughs> see, I, 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 think, I think we as the audience have to go with the premise that the movie set exists, that the movie studio exists in our reality. Um, and all these, because we actually get to leave the studio. We go to Jerry's house. We go to, you know, we're driving along the streets of LA. So I think that is our reality, at least, that we're seeing. Actually, that, have... that's where it's interesting because it's not obvious because I watched the episode five times and actually yeah. I was buying authors as being the reality. You think Arthur's reality is real? Maybe it's so... because, again, I haven't spent so much time on set. So to the viewer that hasn't spent a bunch of time on sets, maybe that part has an unreal feeling. So, uh, okay, so let's think about it this way then. This is good, this is good stuff. So Arthur is having the mental break because maybe he doesn't appreciate so much his life. Uh, maybe he doesn't appreciate his uh, his wife, Marion, and the kid whose name that we're just not gonna remember. <laughs> um, so this is his um this is his reality his mind sort of playing a trick on him so that maybe he can get back to his reality as arthur curtis yeah so i guess imagine, i was coming yeah, from the Capra imagine how much worse it would be imagine how much worse it would be if you were married to nora reagan <laughs> right right so i'm watching this as it's a wonderful life um, mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. I'm not disagreeing with you. You said that, and it like hadn't occurred to me. It's, I think same on your end. So it's like, oh yeah, it is interesting that way too, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that, then I, I guess the question remains, and, and we we will throw that out to the audience: whose yeah. reality is real? Like I said, it's not always obvious. So my second point was going to be everyone in that alternate reality, like I, you know, don't they don't actually exist? Or you could again coin flip. It could be like author's family and stuff. So yeah, right. <laughs> Because right, like right. Gwena mentioned that whoever doesn't actually exist may also be like either of the Twilight Zone or victims of the Twilight Zone. Mm. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Um, they might be. The second question I'm finding more and more that the, the it's a vague question, but that well, you do that in your own podcast. So I like it that way. So <laughs> yeah. you define this word how you want, but um, okay. let, let's call it. I'll ask you by saying it's Jerry. Okay. Did okay. Jerry deserve his trip into the Twilight Zone? Uh, if Jerry is real, then yes. Uh, because it, it, it's sort of the most, like, it, 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 it's, 
it's one of the most sort of gentle trips into the Twilight Zone that he can take. It's one of the most, it's sort of like the Twilight Zone showing its kindness, the way that it did in the 16 millimeter shrine. It's like, we, we don't have to assume that she's dead. We don't have to assume that there's something worse on the other end. We just have to assume that she got what she wanted, um, wherever that may be in the Twilight Zone is many things to many people. So if, uh, if this is the Twilight Zone giving some relief to Jerry in order to be Arthur, then that's okay. So right. I'll, I'll take it as it being Arthur then, in which case the guy is having like, you know, like a Kafka moment. I mean, this yeah, is, yeah, 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 yeah. If it's Arthur, this is absolutely a haunted house. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, you know, but, but again, but to what end? It's like because you, you end with this sort of presumed happy ending where he gets to hop on that TWA plane with his wife and, and go somewhere, uh, maybe only to face more psychological horrors. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but it seems like it, it's like the Twilight Zone is there to give a reset to this guy. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. But is it a, is it a good is it a pleasurable reset or a horrible reset? I guess, and that depends on what perspective you're coming from. It, it uh, might just be the the pleasure of the banality of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like for me, author's job. What is he? Sales experience? Is he? He's a salesman. Something like that. That's yeah. that's a nightmare for me. I, I, it, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, but at least yeah. he gets that one vacation a year. At least he has that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah that's its own ex existential dread where you know jerry's like hit the scene maybe he's, he's feels terrible about himself but he'll have an autobiography to write that jerry will not <laughs> yeah right 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 <laughs> so yeah what's better a pleasurable life or an interesting life that, that's a yeah, good question yeah i i, I lean toward interesting but yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to combine a little bit of both as much as I can, but sure, of course, <laughs> that, that of course. balance, right? The middle path um, yeah, yeah. on a scale of zero to five, five being super trippy, zero being not trippy. Where do you want to place this episode? Um, wait, I'm sorry. Five is super trippy. Right? Yeah. 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 Zero is not trippy at all. I mean, the, this one is about uh, th this one is about like a two. May you know it, it maybe two and a half if I'm being generous, but it's not super trivial. It's like it's all a very kind of self-contained thing, and I think the the only trippy thing about it is the conversation that you and I are having, which is which is the real reality as far as the experience for whomever the reality is occurring or or the the slip into the twilight zone is occurring. Um, it's a pretty contained thing. And it doesn't really affect anybody outside of this one person uh, or the duality of this one person. It, it's not like it, it's an earth shattering uh, moment that, that affects, you know, the entire population, the entirety of humanity. Um, it, it's not like it upends our understanding of the universe or anything like that. So it, it, it's, it's trippy-ish, but only if you're in his shoes. I'm going to throw a curveball and actually give this my first five. <laughs> Whoa, really? Are you, so what about this is so trippy? So I guess I'm going to uh, define yeah. what I mean by trippy. One, okay. I've been finding my, my numbers often have to do with that one effect. And this okay. one, to me, it's trippy because 
you don't even notice it really <laughs> uh-huh. to me uh-huh. to me that's part of my definition like uh like i mentioned the fever the walking talking um uh slot machine uh, i think mark yeah. the co-host i i think he went 2.5 on it if i remember i okay. went up to three because i thought that effect was so whack i i'm giving it a three for the effect but yeah the rest of that episode it's not particularly trippy yeah. right it's all the slot yeah, machine yeah. but this one i was thinking five before we went on air and then after uh-huh. our conversation i'm like i cannot say this is not five because this is <laughs> to me this is like the the you know the Pinnac- pinnacle of trippiness in my younger days when I might have been doing some enhanced music listening, um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. when it, yeah. I, you know, I love sixties rock and I thought I'm going to listen to Pink Floyd's Piper at the gates at dawn and the millenniums began and just trip out. Right. Yeah. But the album that got me the hardest that really tweaked my brain around was pet sounds, which I never thought of being particularly psychedelic before that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. subtle trippiness. So, yeah, I'm like, I guess there's a certain subtlety that I like in my trippiness. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, th- so. That's fair. There, there are other episodes that I think of as more, I mean, I, not that this one doesn't have some universal appeal. And that, that is one of the beauties of the Twilight Zone is that the, the truths and the challenges that they find are always universal because they're always about identity and existence and and kind of your place in the universe. We just happen to be playing it out through these very extreme examples like this, somebody having a a mental break, you know. Um, but I, I I think you know some of the I, I don't know I I think that there are other episodes that I would say are trippier because they have these sort of um, the stakes are higher. You know, not mm. that that necessarily defines whether something is trippy or not. I mean, um, and you're doing everything in order, right? You're releasing every episode. In order. That's right. right. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I won't spoil it by getting to, you know, what I think are some extremely actually, trippy episodes. I was going to, I was going to ask yeah. you that actually, um, it's, it, I mean, you don't really spoil a 60 year old, 60, 60 year old okay. show, but, yeah. um, I was just going to throw out one that. I haven't watched it particularly recently because it's going to be watching in like three months. But uh, To Serve Man, I feel like, is one that people would generally say was one of the trippier ones. I'm not sure I will when I watch it again. No, (laughs) I I don't think I don't think it's that trippy. I I think it's a good sci fi premise. But again, it it is an episode that is building to its twist. Yeah. And sometimes those episodes are very effective. And other times you just go like, okay, they could have done this in 15 minutes. I can tell why this maybe was a very effective short story. But as TV, you can't always just be building to the twist and then that's Mm. it. You know, I feel like an episode like a stop at Willoughby is very trippy like that that ranks a five for me because not only is the not only does it toy with your sense of sympathy for the character but then it has this very dark (laughs) dark (laughs) ending but a very dark i i think question to the audience at the end it's like are we okay with essentially a suicide as an out (laughs) is that a better option for this guy 
Okay, we'll call we'll call that a teaser then, because I still got you on the list for that one. (laughs) Okay, okay, all right. (laughs) Don't don't talk about that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we won't talk about that one. This is a uh, you know what what we're talking about today is a far less dark version of that, like allowing a character to go do something that may be better for them. Mm -hmm. You know, and in this case, it's get on a TWA plane. But yeah. Well, yeah, we'll definitely get back into that one. I'm, I'm sitting yeah, here thinking yeah. of what would I go, what, what would what be other fives for me on that? Um, I would vote the Midnight Sun for that. Also, an obvious twist at the end, but just the whole thing. It's post-apocalyptic, sure. which is, you know, or mid-apocalyptic, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, 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 so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, um, yeah or, or, you know, uh, Long Live Walter Jameson um, is... You know, that that is an age old, huh, no pun intended, uh, that, that is an age old parable uh, that, you know, we, we all have this sense of wanting immortality in, in oh. some way or another, you know. Uh, and that's next but, week's people going to hear that too. Oh, hey, right on it. Okay, <laughs> no, so I'm no, not going to spoil it. No, but, I've, already, uh, I've already recorded that one. And yes, it's a very trippy conversation with... Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> so. it's a trippy episode you know on on its surface um yeah it's a pretty obvious parable but um and and but, and for another teaser trippy. i made sure to get a guest for that one who who wants to talk about anunnaki and stuff so nice all right <laughs> yeah. ne- next, next yeah. week back to weird <laughs> yeah right right um right. i don't know I, I don't think i should call your podcast weird i just i just like them do you do you want them to be weird <laughs> No, I mean, I, our yeah, mission log doesn't need to be weird. You know, we we leave the the weirdness to whenever Star Trek decides to get weird, which it doesn't always. Although you know, we're, we're early in Star Trek Voyager's run, and that's where Brandon uh, Braga has a lot of uh, say in what's happening, and the dude just has like a weird sense of humor and a weird sense of storytelling, and he he definitely is a fan of stuff like this you know twilight zone and horror and and darker stories so when he has his fingerprints on a story in voyager you can absolutely tell just you know and he had fewer opportunities on uh tng but you can tell so when star yeah. trek gets weird we like to talk about the weirdness yeah i'm yeah. a i'm a big braga fan uh yeah. and voyager is just something else i still in your discord but mentioning the beach boys again for me voyager is like yes. the beach boys of the beach yes. boys of star trek you know right they got right. your pet, pet sounds and smile there's timeless <laughs> i mean uh there's yeah. deer in hell just some of the best trek ever and then yeah. there's the episode that i'm just gonna listen to your recap for tonight <laughs> oh <laughs> okay yeah honestly yeah, i just didn't yeah. feel like watching i, I watched it last year because i was uh, listening along with the delta flyers podcast which has yeah you know, right on i'm yeah. harry right yeah, so i was like yeah. eh, this is one i'm just not gonna watch again i think yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of yeah. harrowing to watch i mean you could it, even call it, it a good episode but it's just i don't like watching this it, it sucks <laughs> yeah 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 it's it's not good and and by the way you know stick around for uh for norm's rant at the end okay. of that now, oh, patreon only uh because okay. otherwise we just have to be bleeping it every three seconds <laughs> that'll be fun i i yeah, i got i got you to drop something on the show one so i can like bleep it but <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely um, 
Anyway, uh, one more time, give them that website for the fantastic sure. podcast, usually not weird at Mission Log. <laughs> uh, thanks, man. Yeah, podcast.roddenberry.com. Our, our flagship show, the one we've been talking about is uh, Mission Log, but then there's others, you know, it's Mission Log Live, Trek Files, Sci-Fi 5, etc. But go to podcast.roddenberry.com and surely you will find something there to add to your podcast rotation. And as for this one, it's Time Enough Podcast. On Twitter, it's Time Enough Pod. It's on Facebook under that sort of name. On Patreon, we're under the Patreon umbrella. I said Patreon twice. Podcastio, (laughs) Podcastius, Peep Show reference. Um, (laughs) And uh, we also have Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary, where we talk about, well, sci-fi films. Uh, What else is there? Oh, the Game Game Show. That's a new one, where it's a bunch of British guys having a game show about games asking oh very cool and hey hey, i yeah i don't listen even as a guy in this little constructive podcast i don't always listen to gaming ones i do listen to this one it's funny so oh cool give that my uh wholehearted recommendation in fact i think the new episode is dropping sometime today so (laughs) very cool very very cool okay Uh, anyway uh john don't look behind you Your arms and legs can stretch just so How limited the space they go Your senses know around the room Believe just this and flirt with gloom Believe that places do exist Beyond your outstretched arm and fist Believe that things are found as much Further than your senses touch Each like you may lack some sight And see the day or just the night Each though is a part of all And each in part doth hear the call Yes, you are a world in sun But you are not the only one Those you meet or do contain One spark of the holy flame Your arms and legs can stretch just so How limited a space they go Your senses know around the room Believe is this and flirt with gloom Believe that places do exist Beyond your outstretched arm and fist Believe that things are found as much Further than your senses touch Ah.